Good morning. Well, this is fun to be with you uh, today. Really grateful for the time to be here. Uh, I probably won't be able to be back to Parkerford until about Easter time. Uh, we have a lot going on between now and then with, with Netzer and uh, what you send us into in the mission field. And we are constantly grateful for um, the support of our home church and the sending of our home church. And I would love to take all morning and tell you phenomenal stories about what's happening across southeastern Pennsylvania in different churches and in different regions, and to share with you about what's happening internationally and some of the places the Lord's called us to. But I'm not going to do that today uh, for a couple of different reasons. Um, One of those is that uh, today is a big day in the life of this body. Uh, The passing of Shirley is not a, a small thing for Parker Ford Church. It's a huge thing. You know, uh, the, the church is made up of people, and uh, the community affects each of us as individuals, and we as individuals affect the community. And when a family roots themselves in a local body over a long period of time, it has massive effect on shaping that local body, and it shapes each of us. Uh, you know, I've uh, known Shirley my whole life, my, and, you know, she was my choir director, and three of her kids were my babysitters, um, and uh, I, we, we here have known her. Those of you who have been a part of this church for a long time have really known her. Those of us who have joined more recently haven't known her as much because she couldn't be here quite as often, and, um, you know, she's a, 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 she was a very unique individual. Um, and one of the things that's beautiful in the kingdom of God is when you're in that covenant, when, like the Vizzies just joined uh, this church officially, we're all part of a singular covenant in Christ. If we take the bread and we drink the cup, we're a part of one covenant in Christ, this new covenant. But when we're a part of the local family, the local expression of the church, we join together, we saddle up together and say we're pursuing Christ together. And when we do that, it doesn't mean by any means that we're perfect, It has nothing to do with the fact that, hey, I'm cleaned up, I'm a Christian now, I'm good to go, now I'm in the club with all the other cool people who aren't going to get things wrong. It's nothing like that. It's much like a marriage when you make the covenant with each other and you say, we're a mess, for better or for worse, for rich or for poor, Christ is the one who gets us through this thing and we're committing to be open and honest with each other in this journey. One of the things I loved about Shirley is she did not hide that mess um, at all. She was pretty open and honest. And, uh, but one of the other things about Shirley is that she loved the word of God. And uh, as, as, when I was pastoring at this church, what she would do regularly is she was one of these people who would, uh, a week later, would say, hey, when you were talking about this, I've been thinking about it all week, and she'd come back and want to banter about the word of God. And I loved that. I love that because it was like somebody taking seriously the word of God and what we're talking about and saying, how does this shape our lives? Because we build our lives around the word of God. And I say all that to say, I would love to take the morning to talk about Shirley as well. But actually what I think would be honoring to Shirley is if we honored the word of God. Because that's what uh, she held on to and that's why we have the confidence of where Shirley is right now. And uh, so we're going to continue to move forward with the book of Acts, where DJ has been walking us through the book of Acts, and uh, we're in chapter 12 now, and this is a huge chapter, just a 
big chapter in, not only in size, it's not just a big chapter in size, it's a, it's a big chapter in the story of Acts. This is a major moment for the early church, is in uh, chapter 12. I remember last time I was here sharing with you about Acts, it was another one of these moments where Stephen was being stoned and the story moved from being about the apostles to being about the deacons. And this is another moment where things really shift at this moment here. This is kind of, we're seeing the culmination of the story of Peter and it's going to be switching to the story of Paul. And this is kind of the, the climax here of, of Peter as the, the central figure in the church. And this idea that, that an individual shapes a community and a community shapes an individual can be seen so clearly in this text because this is a story about Peter, but it's not really about Peter at all. Peter's in many ways just a passive individual in this whole story. And there's a story about Herod. There's a story about the church. And Peter's kind of the central name that's in here. And yet it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with him. It has everything to do with God. And it has everything to do with this church. And it has everything to do with the kind of spiritual powers that are swirling all around. And so what I want to do with our time is I want to look at two different things. I want to take a minute, to uh, a, a few minutes, to look at Peter first and the story of Peter and how this affects him. But then I want to zoom out a little bit and look at the bigger picture of what's happening in the church, okay? So um, that's what we're going to do. And uh, if you could join me in prayer, I would appreciate it. Father God, right now, we just asked as Brad was speaking to you um, on behalf of us, that Holy Spirit, you would move in a way that meets us where we are. I ask God that you would help me to be faithful in honoring your word and speaking what you've already spoken, but that Holy Spirit, you would be faithful in speaking to each of our lives what we need to hear today in order that we can more effectively live with you, that we can see you, that we can understand who you are, and that we can live accordingly. And as you do that, we're going to give you honor and praise and glory because you deserve it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want you to think for a second about what you want. What do you want? And you can think about this on three levels. I'm going to ask you to think about this on three levels. First of all, like, what do you want, like, right now? Right, right now. It might be, I want Tim to preach a short sermon. It might be that I want to hear from God. It might be that I want lunch. It might be whatever. What do you want right now? And then take that one and say, okay, there's that one. Let's get that off the table. Then I want you to think about the big want in your life. What do you want from your life? If you look like from beginning to end, what do you want out of your life? What do you want it to be? Okay, like what do I want from life? Okay, that's a little bit of a bigger one. Okay? Think about that for a second. I want you to stop and think about that. If you have a pen and a paper and you want to write down those two things, go ahead and write them down. What do you want right now and what do you want big picture? What do you want? And then here's the third thing, and this is the one that I want us to zero in on. I want you to get rid of, like, whatever your stomach wants right now or whatever, you know, and get rid of, like, the big dreams for your life, your life, uh, your lives, and then think right now, like, in general in your life right now, what do you find yourself thinking about? Like, what, what is it that you kind of want right now, in general? What, where where are, are you contemplating? When you're laying in bed at night, what are you thinking about? When you're going through your day, what's coming to mind? What's driving you? It might not be the same thing as what you want out of your whole life, and it might have nothing to do with what you want right in this moment, but the basic kind of guiding desire for you right now. Just stop for a second. Think about that. 
I'm really going to ask you to think about that. Not just a sermon point. We're followers of Christ trying to understand the word of God. So stop and think for a second. What do I want right now? What is the basic stuff that I want? And let's be really honest. You don't have to, nobody's going to hear this. You're not going to tell anybody this. We're not going to put it up on the screen or anything like that or do popcorn, give you the microphone. Just what do you want? And, and, and be real honest with yourself about that. Okay, story of Peter. This is the story of this scripture here. I'm going to give you a summary because we don't have time to read the whole text today. DJ gave me some pretty clear guardrails, which I'm grateful for, about the time frame today. So um, we're going to go after a whole chapter here in chapter 12 in a short period of time. So here's the story of what's going on. Herod just killed James, the brother of John. Remember, James and John are the sons of thunder. This is one of the three close ones. Peter, James, and John. That means this is one of Peter's best friends that just got killed by Herod. Okay? One of his best friends just got killed. One of the big three in the apostles. One of the leaders of the church just got put to death. And Herod found out that that was working well for him politically. So he decided next on the list was one of the other big three. And he arrested Peter and he threw him in prison. And he was waiting until the end of Passover, at which time he was going to put him to death as well. So Peter's locked in prison, which kind of seems like his second home at this point. Peter spends a lot of time in the slammer. And when he's in prison in this moment, he knows that what's coming is the last breath that he's going to take on this earth until his body's resurrected. He knows that he's going to be killed by Herod. That's what's coming to him, okay? While he's in prison, you remember what happens. Everybody remember what happens? There's a prayer meeting happening at a, at a little guy's house. John Mark is this guy who has a whole other story in scripture that, that we could relate to this thing. All you need to know about that, how this relates to John Mark is when parents pray, big things happen. And there's prayer meetings at John Mark's house, and it changes John Mark's life. And this little guy travels around with Paul and Barnabas, and he writes the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And all of these awesome things happen in this guy's life because his parents are having prayer meetings in their house, you know. And so that's what's going on. They're having this prayer meeting. And in the middle of that prayer meeting, what happens to Peter? He gets set free from prison. And the story's amazing because he gets set free from prison and, you know, he goes and shows up at the door of the, of the place where they're praying and he knocks on the gate and Rhoda, this little girl, comes out and she's like, whoa, Peter's here! And she goes running back and tells everybody and then, <laughs> this is the quote. They're like, you're out of your mind. That's what they say to her. You're out of your mind. And she was in the best sense. She had an imagination that was outside of reason where she could actually believe what she was seeing. And uh, she leaves him at the gate. Eventually she goes back. They open it up. And, and then this is the end of Peter. This is the end of Peter in the church, really, for a while. Peter skips town. We don't know where he went. He probably went to Rome. He went somewhere far away. He got out of Dodge. Okay? And this is the, the, that's the story of what's happening. Now, 
In order to understand a little bit, there's a few things I want to tell you about Peter. If, if you've heard me speak on Peter before, he's one of my favorite guys to speak on because I think that because he's a kind of out there kind of guy who just puts it all out there, kind of like Shirley Elliott, you know, where he just kind of puts it out there. He's that kind of guy. Because of that, you can see the contrast in his life very easily. You can see the rough stuff and you can see the great stuff because he lets it all be out there. So he's an easy guy to preach on. And this is the thing about Peter's life, I think in summary, is the, the transition from being Simon to being Peter. You know, when God renames people, it's always a really big deal. And it's not just about like, I like this name better, so I'm giving you, he's trying to do something. Like when you go from being, you know, Jacob to being Israel, that's a big deal. And so when it comes to Peter, his name was Simon, but then he becomes Peter, the rock. And of course, the whole tension in Peter's life is that when he was Simon, the tough guy fisherman, who everybody followed and said, all right, this is Peter, he's our boss, he's the guy running the fishing business, and he's kind of a rough, blue-collar kind of guy who you just do what he says, and you get fish, and you make money, but don't cross him, or something like that. And then Jesus finds this guy and calls him out. And you would think that Jesus was calling him out because he'd be a good you know, general of his army or something, because he's a tough guy. It turns out that's not why Jesus was calling him out. Jesus was calling him out because he saw in Peter the ability somewhere inside of there to be honest enough to say, this is the guy and I'm going to trust him. And when Peter's at his best, he's trusting God. And when Peter's at his worst, he's trying to be tough. And he's trying to be strong. And when Peter's trying to be strong, he's like, yeah, you're right, I am Peter, I'm the rock, I'm the guy who walks on water, I'm the guy who won't let the Savior down, I'm the guy who will never deny you three times. You know? And when Peter is, is trying to be the rock, it never works out. No, Jesus, you can't wash my feet, I gotta wash it. All right, wash everything. Peter, just do what I tell you to do, you know? But the amazing thing about Peter is when no one else knew it, he says, who am I? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, Peter, this is it, man. No one told you that. My father told you that. You're listening to God. And because of that, that's what makes you Peter. It's this confession, this trust in me. And upon that faith, I'm going to build my church. So this is what happens next. I'm going to have to die. And Peter's like, nope, you're not going to have to die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And the the back and forth in Peter's life has to do with him having to come to terms with the fact that I am a simple Simon by myself. And I can trust Jesus. And when I do, I can walk on water I can see 3,000 people get baptized in a day. I can see all these things happen if I will trust Jesus. But when I try to be strong, I mess everything up. And that's the story of Peter's life. Why is that important in context? Because look at what happens. I want you to turn in chapter 12 to verse 6. We're going to skip the first five verses for now. We're going to come back in a minute to them. It says... Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, stop there for a second. Have you ever noticed that lots of times when God provides, he waits till the last minute? 
Our friends, Randy and Amy Mullins, they pastored at Abundant Life Bible Church. You know, they're some of our closest friends. They just moved to England in order to work with Church Planning Network over there, doing church plants. We're going to be, uh, Jen and I are going to be going over there in uh, June to work with some of the pastors there. When when they were leaving, they have this beautiful house in Coventryville they had and in that area, and they, were, uh, they thought for sure they priced it real aggressively. They thought for sure their house was going to sell quick, sat on the market forever. They couldn't get rid of it if they were giving it away, you know? And on the way to the airport, they get a phone call that they got an offer. Jen and I had the same thing happen with the home when we moved from Ephrata to here in order to live in Coventry Glen to be pastoring here. It wasn't until the very last day that we needed the down payment for this house that our other house sold. Last day. It was crazy. Sometimes God waits till the final hour because he likes to show off and he likes to make us sweat because that's the kind of guy he is. Tomorrow you're going to die, Peter, and tonight I'm going to set you free. Keep trusting. When it looks like there's no hope left, keep trusting. Keep trusting. He's in the waiting. What was Peter doing? Sleeping. What? How far has this guy come? How many times have you been up at night worrying about something? Oh my goodness, if I think about the amount of times where there was like some stressful thing going on at church or this, this thing was going on, I'm like, ah, oh, you know, and all of that. And Peter, at this point in his life, he has 16 soldiers guarding him. He's shackled, he's very uncomfortable, and he's out cold on the night, his last night before dying. This guy's sleeping. Talk about be anxious about nothing. This guy's asleep. It's absolutely phenomenal. The guy who had to control everything, who was, I'm the personal bodyguard of Jesus and it's on me to protect him. He's out cold. So much so that the angel comes to wake him up and he's got to hit him and kick him. And then even when he finally gets out of the prison, it says he still is kind of like, oh, I thought I was sleeping the whole time. He was like sleepwalking. That's how out this guy was. Totally at rest in the Lord. Phenomenal picture of a guy who's been in such tension and turmoil who's able to be at that much rest. So he's sleeping between these two soldiers and bound with two chains, and there were sentries at the door guarding the prison. Now, I want you to hold on to these verses coming up. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell. Just stop for a second. What's your prison right now? What do you need God to shine light into in your life? There are places where you feel stuck. There are places where you feel bound. There are places where you feel you're in that cycle. In your cell is where the light of Jesus wants to shine. That is not a place where he is incapable of getting to. That's a place where we need to open ourselves up to the reality that there is no place where the light of Jesus can't shine. Right? So this is, it shines in his cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. There's a lot there. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. The guy's still in, like, la-la land. When they passed on, when, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate 
leading to the city, and it opened for them on its own accord. Now listen, his shackles fell off and the iron gate opens up. What should come to mind from the scripture when we see chains falling off and when we see the shackles coming free and we see the gates opening up? In my opinion, there's two things. First, we should hear Jesus quote in Nazareth in Isaiah 61. From Isaiah 61, you remember when he's in the synagogue and what does he say? Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me among other things, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to opening the prison to those who are bound. Jesus does this. Jesus does this. I don't care if you have 16 soldiers on you. I don't care if you're locked in by debt. I don't care if you've been relationally wounded. I don't care what all those things are. It is not enough to keep Jesus from setting you free. He came to set people free. He came to say the prison is open and you can walk out. Here's the other thing that should come to mind. In Matthew 16, he looks at Peter after his confession and he says, your name is Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. And when that iron gate opens up, we should see there's no gate on heaven, on earth earth there's no gate in hell he's got the keys to the kingdom and those gates are going to fall and as strong as iron gates look when it comes to the power of God flowing in this apostle it's going to open up on its own accord all things submit to the authority of God okay I could keep going on and on about Peter well the main thing I want you to know is that this guy has learned to be at rest in God and that we can be at rest in God What's amazing is that while he's at rest, the church is not. Because the church is going to go to war for Peter. It's an awesome thing. All right, so what do you want? I want you to look at the first five verses now with me, okay? We got to hustle. Got just a few minutes here. We got to hustle to flip the script. We're zooming out. That's the life of Peter and what's going on in his life. Now we're going to zoom out to the life of the church and look at the first five verses. It's really important that you don't just skip over transitions in Scripture. It's easy to kind of blow past the transitionary statement and hop right into the next narrative, but you, you really need the setup of the story. And these first five verses are vital in understanding what's happening in the church. It says, about that time, Herod... Oh, As we read these five, there are um, different players in this story who have positions of authority, positions of power. I want you to, as we're reading these five verses, think about two things. What are the positions of authority? What are the places of power? And what are the desires or ambitions or motivations? So there's, you'll see motivations and desires and you'll see power and authority. What are the, the motivations? What are the powers to, to go after them? About this time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers, that's 16 soldiers, to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. All right, in those five verses, who are the main players? 
Tell me, who are, who's sitting in their positions? Who are they? Let's hear it. Herod, one. Who's another player? The Jews, another. One more. The church, okay? What do they each want is a question in here. And what is their power is the question. What does Herod want? To please the Jews. For some reason, Herod is obsessed with the approval of the people he's leading. He wants to lead by popularity. That's what he wants. He wants the approval ratings. Okay? That's clearly what he wants. And this has been a generational problem in the Herods. They have a love-hate relationship with the Jews. His great-grandfather is Herod the Great. You remember what he did a little earlier in the story of the gospel? You remember he took out the city of Bethlehem, all the babies in the city of Bethlehem, genocide in order to get rid of Jesus? You know why? Because he liked the relationship he had with the Jews. He married this Hasmonean uh, queen. She was a Jewish woman, and the Hasmoneans were known for revolting against Rome, and yet he married this girl because he was, there was something about him that was really drawn to the Jews, and there's been this kind of weird love-hate relationship between the Herods and the Jews, and the Herods really wanted to be liked by the Jews, and the Jews kind of were okay with Herod, and then they weren't, you know? And he always cared about what people thought of him as a leader. And because of that, he didn't lead well. Then there's the Jews. What do the Jews want? Okay, they want to get rid of the Christians. Why? Okay, so false doctrine. They wanted to guard against false doctrine. Why? They wanted power? What's the big threat of Jesus to these guys? Their system. They love their system. They, love the, they even love their system in the way it's working with Rome right now. At least they're okay with it. Because they have a place that works for them. They want to guard their comfort, their stability, and their security. And they don't want anything messing that up. So they want to protect things as they are. And they're willing to shape everything in order to get it. When it comes to Herod's actual power, what gave him authority? What gave him power? His position, Rome. What was it that he could wield in order to have power? A sword, and he did. And he killed James, and people liked it. He thinks that his power is in his popularity, but his power is actually in his sword. The only people, reason people like him is because he's protecting their stability because he has the power to wield the sword. There's this political authority, this military, military authority that's at play in this passage. And then there's the second, which is the religious authority of the Jews. This is more of a mental thing, less of a physical thing and more of a mental thing. And what that is, is the power to say what is and what isn't, what's right and what's wrong, the power to boost up righteousness and pride in people and the ability to shame people and put fear in them through how we operate in the mind. And so Herod, who is actually a Jew by religion, who has uh, become migrated to the Jewish faith, now has these religious leaders and they have, they have a grip on him. 
And so you have the religious authority at play, and you have the military authority, the governmental authority at play, and this guy wants the approval of this people, and these people want to maintain the status quo. You see how that marriage is working? And then there's one other group at play here. And who are they? They're the church. And what's their authority? Divine authority. Spiritual authority. And what do they want? Funny thing is, Herod doesn't actually really know what he wants. I mean, he wants the approval of these people, but who knows why? Because he thinks that's his authority, his power, but he already has this sword. He's just confused. The Jews, they think they're guarding their doctrine. They're trying to maintain status quo. They don't actually know what they want because security is actually in God, and they could have God anytime they wanted. They're confused. The Christians, they know exactly what they want. Something very simple. What do they want? They want their friend freed. It's real simple. God, this is what we want. This is what we want. It's amazing how confusing our motivations can be when we have divided hearts. It's amazing when our minds are unstable. James talks about that. It's like a person who goes and looks at themselves in the mirror and walks away and forgets who they are. That's a person who asks without faith. And the reason we ask without faith is because we're double-minded. How can I have faith when I'm asking God, when I want this from God, but I want this apart from God? And so I don't have faith. And I'm kind of like the guy who's like, yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm your child wanting what you want. And then I'm over here and I'm like, kind of, and I don't really have faith and I'm all confused. And that's where the Jews are and that's where Herod it is. But the church in this moment is locked in. They know exactly what they want. And while Peter is in prison, sleeping safe because he knows that God's got him, everyone else is like, we hope that Peter's resting well, but we will not rest while our brother's in prison. We're going to war. And they get on their faces before him and they're not going to rest. They're in comfort. He's in prison. He's sleeping. They're warring. That is how the church should work. Every time. We don't care about our own concerns. Carry each other's burdens. Make sure others, take the heart of a servant, the heart of Christ. Make sure that we believe that others are more important than ourselves. Whatever my concerns are, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will let you sleep in a prison when you got 16 guards around you. But when our friends are hurting, that's when we say, it is not my job to be comfortable and to sit back and say, ah, God's got it. It's easy to be at rest when you don't care. This is the moment where I have to stir up and say, Holy Spirit, allow me to feel what it is that they're in the middle of and let me war for them. Let me care for them. Because I wield authority in the spiritual realm. Here's the thing when it comes to power and motivation. And this is the, the main point I want to make here. Is that there's a lot of different authorities and a lot of different motivations. But there's one that's clearly more capable and more effective than the rest. How many people in this room have a computer? If your computer crashes and dies, I hope that you have a backup. 
And there's a couple different ways to back up your computer. There's like an external hard drive, you know, that you plug it in and it like backs up to a, a, an actual drive outside of your computer. And that used to be the primary way that everybody backed up their stuff. No longer is that the primary way that everybody backs up their stuff. How does everybody back it up now? Most people back it up now. On the cloud, somewhere here, I think, right? What's amazing about when, when technology transitioned and we could back stuff up in the cloud, it, it, the, the, the opportunities are limitless now. Because the thing is, is my stuff's not only backed up to my computer, it's the fact that right here I can access my stuff on the cloud. And if I go to your house and go to your computer and I know my login, I can access my stuff there. Because somewhere out there is all my information and hopefully I'm the only one who has access to it. There's infinitely more possibilities when I'm uploading my information to the cloud instead of just to an external hard drive. But what doesn't work is when you're trying to figure out how to have this back up here and this back up here. It can get really messy and confusing unless you just say, I'm putting it all up there. But it's scary to put it all up there. Here's the thing. As Christians, we're so tempted to worry about political authority. We're so tempted to worry about religious and academic authority. We're so worried about making sure that we can wield our resources to get what we want. But here's the thing, man. If we want to see the kingdom of God move, we got to upload our desires, upload our intellect, upload our efforts, upload our lives into the kingdom of God and say, they're not my own anymore. It doesn't matter what I want. It matters what God wants. It doesn't matter what my resources are or are not. It matters what his are. It doesn't matter what I think makes sense. It's way beyond my understanding. It matters what his word says. And until I upload everything into the cloud, I'm at this weird spot where over here I'm kind of praying about something, but it seems like it's not going to quite get all the way because I'm also looking at the political authorities and powers and the intellectual powers and authorities and the economic powers and authorities. And all those things are lining up in a way that I'm like, whoa, when I'm in this world, in this world here, it seems too heavy. But when I upload my life into the kingdom of God, it gets real simple. Real, and the dangers, the risks are on a whole nother level. But you want to sleep in prison and you want to see people set free, you can't have a foot in both worlds. You got to say, my desires do not matter. Whatever I wrote on that paper at the beginning of this message, if it didn't come from God and it hasn't had, heading toward God, rip it up, start over, get back to the word and say, I want your heart to inform what my desire should be. Don't write letters on stone, write your law on my heart. Take out my old crusty heart and give me a heart of flesh. Make me desire what you desire. And when I do, then I will be able to join with my brothers and sisters with great confidence standing in front of the throne room of God and saying, when we agree together about what he wants, the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. The church can pray and the church can see things move in a way that nothing else can, but we got to upload our lives into the spiritual kingdom of God in order to see the power flow. You understand what I'm saying? Understand what I'm saying? This is what the church understood 
in the early days. And this is what I believe we have seen in moments of the history of Parker Ford Church when we have prayed and we've watched God move. And I would encourage you that your life is not about any desires other than God's desires, any thoughts other than God's thoughts, any resources other than God's resources. Our life is now buried and hidden with God in Christ Jesus. Now the one who sets Peter free can set us free from ourselves, from our bondage, from our chain. Let's upload our lives into his cloud. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the power of prayer. We thank you and praise you for the open access to the throne room of God. We thank you and praise you that we are not left alone. You do not leave us as orphans. That you told Peter, you told the church, you tell all all of us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That I will go with you always even to the end of the age. And so, Father, we we recognize in this moment that we are complicated in our desires. We are complicated in our hearts. But you say this, you say, let your reasonableness be made known to all. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, be anxious about nothing. You are present and you are in this room. You are in our lives. You are in our budgets. You are in our calendars. You are in our government. You are in our economic sphere. You are in the academic world. God, there is nowhere where you cannot be. And we just ask that, Father, it would be obvious that we are reasonable. We're not irrational. We are reasonable. If God is at hand, why would we lean into the powers of the government or the powers of money or the powers of influence or the powers of academia? If God is at hand, then let your reasonableness be made known to all. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer, let your requests be made known unto God. We thank you that you care and that you're present. In the name of Jesus, amen.